You're listening to Marketing News Canada, Canada's number one show featuring the brightest minds in marketing, PR, and digital advertising. Welcome, everybody, to another great episode of Marketing News Canada, Canada's number one podcast in all things marketing, advertising, and communications. I'm your host, Ted Lau, podcast host, award-winning agency owner, and full-time family man. Today on the show, we have Hanson Locke, president of Lux Insights. Hanson is the president and co-owner of Lux Insights, an award-winning market research agency headquartered in North Vancouver. The past two decades, he has consulted on global brands such as Nintendo, Amazon, Fitbit, and Bluetooth, as well as BC-based companies such as BCAA, the Vancouver Aquarium, and BC Hydro. He joined Lux Insights during its startup phase in 2011 and has helped grow the company to its current team of 15 with offices in North Vancouver, BC, and Bellevue, Washington. He oversees Lux with focus on guiding the leadership team, client consultation, and business development. Hansen is an active moderator and is Lux's resident expert on data analytics. Hansen has spoken at the Pacific Coast Builders Conference in San Francisco, the Urban Development Institute in Vancouver, and has also been a guest lecturer at UBC, SFU, and Capilano University. He holds a Bachelor of Business Administration in Marketing from Simon Fraser University. When he's not guiding Lux, you can find Hansen enjoying the outdoors with his family, hiking the BCMC on grouse, or trying to improve his game of golf, tennis, or basketball. He also enjoys playing Dota 2, NBA 2K, and RPGs in the evening. Hansen, welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me. That was a bit of a mouthful. It's, hey, man, it's always a mouthful when you got guests that are very well accomplished. So, you know, thanks for your time today. We usually ask our guests a little bit about who they are, just start with an origin story, a bit about, you know, how they got to where they are, and, and then we'll continue from there. Yeah. Oh, wow. I guess a, a great place to start is, is my family. You know, my parents, my mom was born in Shanghai and my dad was born in Hong Kong. And uh, they met and fell in love in Hong Kong and immigrated here in the 70s. So they came here and kind of had to scrape a living for themselves. They're a trained engineer and uh, a musician, my mom, a piano teacher, I think. And, uh, you know, it wasn't hard for them. It wasn't easy for them. But, you know, they had my brother first, four years before me, and they had me in the early 80s. And, you know, I grew up in Burnaby. So I was born in Vancouver, grew up in Burnaby, and, you know, spent much of my schooling in, in all of Burnaby. I went to high school there, went to elementary school there and university. So, you know, some regrets about not going elsewhere to, to do my post-secondary, but no regrets about, you know, obviously being able to grow up in a great city like it is here. And you know, my marketing career is not exactly picture perfect in the sense that it wasn't planned. I actually had a huge passion for computers and computer science. So I, I build my own computers still, kind of like to geek out that way. But I did two years of computer science and decided I absolutely hated it. I didn't love the culture or the spirit of collaboration wasn't really there, in my opinion. I didn't enjoy just the environment. And, you know, I wasn't as good as coding as I would have liked. I was, I'm okay at it, but not great. So at the same time, I found I was really enjoying my marketing classes. I was doing a joint major. So kind of a typical like university student story, right? Like you have no idea what you're doing, kind of just muddling your way around. And when I got to my first co-op term, and I would encourage anybody who's you know, listening that's a student, like do co-op try stuff. But I did my first co-op term and I applied for a bunch of places. And the first one I got that I was interested in, 
I applied for a ton of places was a research firm out in Port Moody, a small research firm that focuses on like in like during events, live event measurement. And I did everything from like sitting at reception to helping them build a new website to whatever they sent me all over the place just to like set up kiosks and whatnot. But I love the process of like using science and data to make marketing decisions. I had this perception that marketing was all creative. It was all just madmen kind of like, you know, coming up with cool ideas and people were like, yes, that's awesome. And then boom, your ad campaign's done. But I realized that data had a lot to do and it was actually very much picking up steam in driving, you know, marketing decisions back in the early 2000s. And so that's what got me hooked. So from there, finished my co-op term there and did another co-op term with a bigger global agency called Ipsos. They're based headquartered in Paris and they're a global company. They ended up offering me a job and I spent eight years there between Vancouver and Seattle. So my current business partner, Claire, she was asked to open an office in Seattle for Ipsos. And, you know, I was kind of like mid-level manager at that point. She's like, hey, you want to come do this with me. So I moved down there for two years, helped grow the business, did a lot of the work, did the research work and enjoyed living there for a couple of years. And then fast forward to 2011, I moved back to Vancouver because my wife at the, and I were at the time were engaged and we decided, you know, our family's all here, moved back here. And then Claire had left Ipsos, traveled and decided to start Lux and gave me a call and was like, hey, do you want to do this thing together? <laughs> and we have such a good friendship uh, and partnership and respect for each other. Uh, that I was like, you know, my answer, I think, was, uh, you know, why didn't you call me sooner kind of thing. You didn't say you had me at yes or whatever. You had me at hello or <laughs> no. whatever. <Lisa. laughs> no, <laughs> but it was like, it was one of those things where it's, it's funny hearing her tell the story later on. She was like, you know, she was really nervous, you know, because, you know, as a business owner, like first time, like, you know, she admitted to being quite nervous about the whole thing and, and, you know, taking on some risk and hiring her first person. And I know I certainly wasn't ready for risk necessarily, but I was excited at the prospect of doing something different after working at a big global firm for a while. So, you know, the rest is history. You no, know, now it's been 11 years, almost 2011 to now 2021, almost 2022. Uh, Claire and I are still talking on a weekly basis. She's mostly out of the day-to-day running of the business. And I've got an amazing team that I work with every single day. And it's just been a an awesome journey. So that's that's kind of how I got to where I am. Now my life is is Lux running the business. My two young kids, four and seven, who take, take up a good amount of time. My wife and I, you know, just, you know, between taking care of the kids and finding some time for ourselves are pretty busy. It sounds like a magical story and pretty easy, right? When when you talk about it like that. But we'll dig into, you know, how how those ups and downs happen and, and what you learned from them. But I want to touch upon a, a point about you know, every university kid, if we have, you know, aspiring marketers or young university students listening in on this, that, yeah, I, I had the very same experience. Actually, we, I went to Simon Fraser as well. And, you know, I wanted to, I, I wanted to get into art school, but, you know, having Asian parents, it was very much like, no, that's, that's not going to happen. And so I went to Simon Fraser because they had a comp sci program. I did comp sci for the first year because they had computer animation in fourth year. And, you know, silly enough of me to think, oh yeah, I'll just uh, I'll just slug it up for three and a half years in comp sci, so I can take the you know a fourth year computer animation course, and uh, well, four months into it, first semester, I almost flunk out because I can't do any programming. So I decided, well, I'm going to go and do what all all the other Chinese kids do when they don't know what they're doing. They're going to do a business degree. So I did a business <laughs> degree, and I hated it. Kind of like what you talked about, how you didn't like comp sci, and I think that's normal that journey, right? And and doing co op, you know. 
great that you found you know your calling with co-op. I I did the opposite. I I did co-op and found I did not want to work for somebody. Like it was like like loud right. and clear. Do not want to do this. And um, I happened to be standing outside my co-op coordinator's office, and there was a little poster. You know, this is back in. 1999 about digital video. There's a digital video course in communications. Yeah. And so I took it and kind of the rest was history. So, you know, I kind of, I kind of see, you know, we have a, a few things in common, but, you know, talking about, you know, one thing that we, we don't have in common is that, you know, I started my business and, and kind of just started from scratch, removed my parents' garage and kind of started right out of university. Whereas you actually had the opportunity to work for a global brand. Yeah. And, not a lot of people are in that have that distinction of working for a very large company and now running your own show. What differences, you know, obviously from other than the obvious, you know, like do you see from a from a culture building standpoint, from how you do marketing, calling the shots? Like, what are the pros and cons, as it were? Yeah, I mean, there are definitely pros and cons, and um, I have nothing but good things to say about you know my old firm. You know, I got my start there, and. I would say one of the big pros is the systems they have in place, right? For someone entering their career, they had a, back then it was called the Ipsos Gold Program, but it was an internship training program that basically brought you from, you know, nothing about research to giving you all the foundational pieces, which was amazing. So I got to, you know, go and meet other interns from across North America at our like annual summit or whatever. So we went to Montreal and basically partied (laughs) ate smoked meat, you know, and like hung out, you know, like showed up for sessions the next morning. People are like downing water and having a good time. But there was a real strong camaraderie behind it. A great training really established the foundation. And, you know, they actually got the experts that were in the company to teach you about qualitative research, teach you about quantitative research, teach you about business development. And so it was a really, really great program. And And this is all paid. Like they paid you to take their course. I was a paid, I was a full-time, you know, back then making 30 something grand a year or whatever it was. Didn't even You're matter, rich. but yeah, <laughs> I was making, it was like, yeah, full-time, full-time. And like, as part of your day-to-day duties, you didn't just have to like help execute on projects. You had to like be progressing in this mm. program. Uh, so actually back then they were revamping a system and, and I was one of the first ones to go through it. And it was, it was amazing. So that's a huge thing. Like the systems, things like, you know, really polished accounting systems and project management systems and all that, right? Like when you work for a big firm, you have that. You have things like, you know, travel, right? Whenever, if I ever wanted to move to a different country and work for Ipsos, that opportunity, if I wanted to go to Europe, and I had colleagues that did that, stay with the company, go to Europe, go to Asia, go wherever. You can do that. Company yeah, wants you know to what? keep Yeah, my, my brother-in-law, um, he works for EA, speaking of video games, and, and mm. his... His office, even though he lived, they live in Burnaby, and EA's head office is in Burnaby. He reports to Stockholm, so he travels to Sweden. I guess not as much now because of COVID, but at the time he'd be traveling to Sweden. Eat, he loves eating, so he'd go in all the nice yeah. places in Stockholm. Yeah. So you got that benefit, okay? So lots yeah. of able to travel with the job. Yeah, yeah. I've been to like all across the U.S. doing projects, and I know I still do that a little bit now before COVID. But you know, when you're working for a bigger company, you get more opportunities, like that and um you know the the brand itself right i mean it's like nice to to see what you know quote unquote the the biggest and the the best in the world how they do it right and it's a great training ground and i got exposed to a lot of amazing clients and people like i think the people 
their, you know, every big company has different culture. And I think one of the cool things about Ipsos at the time was Ipsos had acquired Angus Reed Group back, you know, the original big market research firm in Canada. So a lot of the cool cultural things that firm had around mentorship and just a fun culture, right, uh, was there. So I got to benefit from that and all the great people who worked there. You know, on the con side of things about working for a big global company, you know, there are, there's a lot of red tape, right? And, you know, a global company will find ways for the entire company to become more efficient. So as time went on, you know, they moved some of the operations from like local. So we could work with our internal partners, uh, like just downstairs. And it was a great relationship. They moved into Romania at one point and it just made it way harder to do my job. Did they let everyone was, go or they moved everyone from Vancouver to Romania? They let a bunch of people go, promoted some people. And then like, it was just cheaper to have some of the operations people in Romania. So that's what they did. I remember one year I was tasked with like a special initiative to help lead the redesign of our uh, Canadian website, which was like super cool for me. I was like a mid-level manager to get to work on something so big. And we'd gotten to like wireframes and concepts and someone from Paris came on and said, nope, you can't touch the brand at all, which I, I get, right? You're a global brand. You can't have different looking things all over the place. But it wasn't like the existing site, it wasn't working for the Canadian business. So we took some initiative to make it better. And Paris came down and said, nope, not on brand. We're going to redo everything from Paris. So all that money and time you spent, too bad. We're, we're not going to do any of that. So it's just like little things like that, where like when a you're little? big, part of a like glow, you know, big things like that. <laughs> things like that. Okay. So then had you left Ipsos when, when Claire called her? Claire came knocking while you know you were building this website. You're like, I was there. Hmm. This is just this is just a little while after that had happened, and you know, like it wasn't so much I was upset or anything. It was obviously bothered me, but it was more because I started my career there, spent eight years there, and I was kind of curious, right? Like about what it would be like to you know be a little bit closer. Another thing for the big firm that was evident to me was that as you moved up at Ipsos you almost got a little farther away from the clients because, you know, you tended to be working on more like national or, you know, global initiatives and things like that, which is cool and great. But I was, I still really much enjoyed the work, but still wanted to move up. So it was really attractive for me when Claire came knocking. I was still at Ipsos, but I was, you know, itching for something different. You know, eight years into my career, I was itching for something. And yeah, there was definitely risk, but I knew we could do it. I knew we could do it because, you know, like, services-based business, like a lot of his relationships. And we had, you know, great relationships with people we'd worked with before. So felt really good about that. Well, yeah. And so maybe let's talk about some of those big brands, you know, and when you and I've talked in the past, you shared with me some of your large name clients like Nintendo and Amazon and Fitbit. I would imagine that's mostly from relationships. Yeah. Or, or how did you get those as clients? Because not everyone gets to work with these big behemoth brands. Hundred percent, and I mean, if there's one thing I would advise anyone in their career in marketing, and you, if you've progressed, you probably already know this, but those relationships are so important. You know how you treat people and do good not not just do good work, but how you treat people. They'll always come back to pay you back in the right way. So, Amazon. So there was a girl, not a girl, a woman, like a, a colleague who we hired her as an intern in our Seattle office when I was at Ipsos. She was straight out of Washington State University, brand new out of school. I was a senior manager at the time and went through the interview process and she was kind of the brightest of the bunch. We hired her and we worked with her for you know, a few years. 
And, you know, she, as you would expect, being as bright as she was and as good as she was, continued to progress in her career. So she was the one that brought us into Fitbit and then eventually brought us into Amazon because we just had a great working relationship with her. And she's an amazing researcher. And just because we enjoyed working together, wherever she went, you know, she brought us along. Amazon is not easy to get into. You know, it's there's actually a pretty difficult like entry process to become a supplier for Amazon. So you you almost always have to have some sort of in or something that is truly differentiated out there. And as a marketing agency or market research agency, you know, you've got much of the same tools as everybody else, right? So yep, relationship. Nintendo was a client that was brought in at Ipsos by somebody else. But I took over that account being a gamer having a lot of personal interest in it. So I ran that account at Ipsos. And this is Nintendo of Canada, not Nintendo of the US. Um, and I ran that account at Ipsos for a couple of years. And when I went to, you know, left and joined Lux, I stayed in touch with them. And a year and a bit later on, you know, they were looking at switching partners, right? And I got a call. And I just stayed, I made sure I stayed in touch with them because I knew that opportunity would come eventually within obviously the confines of my NDA, not NDA, sorry, my non-compete. I had a one year non-compete after I left. So I had to be very careful about you know, not doing anything I couldn't do. But the second it was over, I was allowed to say, hey, here's where I'm at. And then a year after that, they were a client of Lux. Fantastic. So then with the the growth of the business, you know, you started, it was, was you and Claire when, when it started or? Claire by herself. She did it for a year. And then I joined about a, a year and a bit after she started it. So 18 months. And then now you yeah. guys have grown it to 15. Tell us about that journey. I'm imagining it's not a linear line because I know it just in my own agency experience, yeah. it's not a it's not a linear line. You know, uh, any tips and advice for anyone that's wanting to maybe run their own marketing agency? Yeah, I mean, it certainly wasn't linear. I mean, I think we are very fortunate in that it was, you know, kind of was a linear line, except for maybe a couple of the years in there, in the sense that like we were we already were experts in what we did. And we had established relationships. So that really helped in that we knew we could dive right into doing exactly what we were doing. And there's not a huge capital cost to getting started. You know, we needed a laptop and some desks, right? And the rest of it is all like high you know, brain work, right? Like based on experience and, you know, being able to strategically look at data, right? And translate to marketing decisions. Like we knew we the two of us could do that. But it was hard, you know, like any startup, right? You're like, early days, you were like, hmm, where's the business going to come from, right? You know, in the first couple of years, we had most of our revenue from one client, one BC Crown Corporation, which I will keep nameless. And it was great, but also scary when 70%, 60 some odd percent of your revenue is from one client. You basically work, you just got a job, you know, under your own company working for that one agency, yeah. right? So a huge, a huge priority of ours after... Like, you know, making sure our salaries were paid and it's like, okay, like, how are we going to diversify this thing? How are we going to make sure that when inevitably an election happens or, you know, they, someone who's running the department changes and they don't want to work with us anymore, like that sort of stuff just happens, right? You know, no, no agency stays permanently with one firm forever, right? Very difficult. Mm -hmm. So diversification was really important. And establishing culture, I think like that, that was one thing that, you know, we learned when we built, when Claire led and built the office in Seattle and I was watching and, and learning that it was really important to our team. So we knew we wanted to grow the team. We knew we wanted to have more people, but to do it in a way where 
when you're holding your own purse swing strings, like when you're like work for a big company, you're building a team, it's, it's someone else's money, right? Mm-hmm. So, Hey, we had a great year. As long as the company approved, let's go do a retreat in Phoenix. And we did this and we spent a ton of money and flew 10 people down there. And it was a party, bring your spouses. It was amazing. Like that's a lot easier to say yes to when it's someone else's money. So we wanted to make sure that we kept in the things that really mattered to culture, that really mattered to us, that weren't frivolous, but were like, not just fun, but also we knew it was a good investment in culture. So we have this, this thing where we always do two retreats a year. We do a mid-year retreat that's usually a bit smaller, but get out of the office locally. And then we do a big like summer year-end retreat where we like go somewhere because it's a chance for us to get together and like think about the business, but also just like hang out and like enjoy each other's company. So like we had to make a lot of these decisions that weren't easy to make, you know? And then as you were saying, like maybe our, we had a bit of a linear path over the years, but from month to month, quarter to quarter, up and down and up and down, right? You know, I wasn't an owner from the beginning. I only actually became an owner two years ago, a year and a bit ago. But I was, you know, very, very transparent in terms of seeing everything and what was going on. So I could see, you know, how much stress Claire had. I was aware of how, what was going on financially with the company. So it's stressful. You have a down quarter, right? You're like, mm-hmm. we have this payroll, right? We've got mm-hmm. what we need to do, all these sorts of things, right? So, and, but to have that mindset of, no, we need to continue to invest. You have to like trust the process, right? Like the sports thing, you got to trust the process. You got to trust the process, do the right things. And then like personnel decisions, I think is one of the hardest things as a business owner, right? Like sometimes you hire someone, you think they're the perfect person for the job and it doesn't work out. So you've got to go through that process of letting someone go, a senior person, or sometimes it's not even a performance thing. It's a strategically, we're trying to go, we're going to go in a different direction and it just doesn't make sense. You've got to make those calls and it's hard. It's really hard to especially when you've invested in a relationship with people, like to make those sorts of calls, you know, you didn't really have, there was at Ipsos, there was an HR department, right? So you could just, just, you know, pass it off to them, right? Pass that A little bit, a little bit. Like, you know, as a good manager, you would still be involved, but there were like set processes and like someone else changed the door lock codes, right? Like someone else locked them out out of IT. Someone else walked them to their desk kind of thing, right? Like here, you do it all yourself as an, as a business owner. So Mm -hmm. that is a, not the most fun part, but uh, it's a necessity and a reality of, of being a business owner. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, Visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Oh yeah, we had a we had an incident over COVID. You know, we had to let someone go, and it was it was extremely messy. And you don't want to do it that way, but you know, because of the restrictions and whatnot, and um, you never know how someone's going to react, and mm -hmm. you're just hoping that uh, it, it works out. Let's pivot over to the data side. So I've run my agency it was a, a it's been a creative agency. The first 17 years of the agency was was creative, and the last two and a bit have been lead gen where we marry creative and and some data but i say it with some greatly bolded underlined and italicized because when i'm talking to a data you know research expert like yourself you know it pales in comparison but i you know data wasn't really something as a you know small agency working with you know maybe mid-sized bc agencies uh, companies but they're you know in the grand scheme of things still very small where mm. data really doesn't play a ton of Priority, just I don't know if it's cost. I don't know really what, but we don't see that a lot, at least in in my world. Whereas you know maybe that's why you're working with the larger firms. Talk about like how how data's evolved. You know from from when you started, what it was like, and the importance of it now, and how we can even as you know people working in mid-sized firms can leverage that. A oh, great question. I would say it's definitely evolved. You know, thinking back to when I started. There, there have always been people who respected and understood the strategic value of data, but it wasn't as mainstream, I think, back then when I started 20 some odd years ago, 20 years ago, as it is now. Back then, there were a lot of research programs out there that were, okay, let's disaster check this ad. Or What's let's disaster track. check? What, It's what, like, what okay, so mean? we've got this ad, we've built it, but let's test it to make sure, you know, have we said something offensive or did people not like this actor or, you know what I mean? It's just like a final check, right? And agencies back then didn't love that because, oh, like it makes us look bad or now if it doesn't come out great, then we have to go back to the drawing board and reshoot. Like mm -hmm. it was kind of this, like we were kind of this final check mark in some ways, not, not with all clients, but with some, or it was a tracking program where we're like, okay, let's measure the awareness of this of our super pages or yellow pages. Like back then, yellow pages and super pages did awareness work. Did people were people using telephone books and aware of telephone books, like you know. But as you know, over the past 20 years, what I've seen is like executives and people who are in leadership positions are asking for data more to make strategic decisions. So it's not a check at the end, it's what are we even trying to say or do in this campaign? What should the strategic direction of our company be relative to our competitors' positioning? And that's all things that data can, you know, the research that we do can, can tell you. So it's been exciting for me because, you know, more and more now, you know, 
I can see, oh, I've been invited to, for example, a smaller company, a startup, will say, we need to do Series B funding, fundraising or Series C. We need to do some research to demonstrate the validity of our concept or the fact that there is serious interest in what we're doing. And I've been part of these presentations where I've been invited in as a neutral third party with the research to say, look, this concept absolutely has legs. This is the size of the market out there, right? So I'm not here to tell you to invest. I'm here just to tell you that relative to other products we've seen, this has this much interest. Or, you know, and I would say it's not just large firms, like startups we work with. We work with a lot of like medium-sized firms here in BC. So Saks Underwear here in Vancouver, Urban Barn here in Vancouver. Those are you know, not like gigantic, massive corporations, local companies, you know, with a pretty good brand looking to grow and accelerate. And research is really valuable to them, you know, especially as they're past that startup phase, thinking about how do they grow their brand? Do they pivot to new products? How do they expand even geography to different areas? Research has been a big part of us and us working with brands like that. How do you manage bias or how do you manage, you know, a particular, you know, someone maybe startup or whoever hires you and has a hypothesis. Is our brand working? Is this strategy working? And then you come back and maybe you get data and it's like, eh, your idea is not so fantastic or your brand actually didn't resonate. How do those conversations go and, and are clients receptive to it? Yeah, uh, it, they are not easy conversations, but I think it's part of our values as a company. You know, courage is one of our values and we talk about being truthful with our clients. You know, if you're able to do good research and tell the true story, you're going to get more business and have people come back to you in the future. They need to hear the tough news. The conversations aren't easy, but it's like baked into all of our team members that we, we don't, the data tells the story, right? Like you have to have the savvy and the experience to be able to look for the right things, but that bias is always going to be there. But we spend a lot of time with our clients upfront talking to them about what are you trying to do with this? If we have the same objectives going into this. If, you, if we know clearly what your objectives are, let's say it's a go or no-go decision, then we can be very clear about that. If you want us here just to confirm what you already think is happening, we will challenge you because the, sometimes the data doesn't support that. Uh, so I'll give one example. We had a, a, a local startup here was that was in packaged goods, uh, non-dairy beverage. And you know they'd done a lot of like bootstrap, talk to your friends and family. Right. But, you know, the bias there is, of course, your friends and family are going to like tell you that it's all good. Right. Because they want to support. It's delicious. It's great. <laughs> it's great. It's so and, healthy. you know, so we did some research on the brand. We did some taste test research and didn't come back particularly well. Right. And so the first round, you know, they had to go back to, you know, go back to formula. If you remember that, that line from the Spider-Man movie, go back to formula. Right. <laughs> it raised some concerns, but it, it was it just didn't test out very well. Oh, they listened. Even, they actually did. Go they back. listened and they did it a couple more. You know, they went through a couple more rounds of trying to get it going. And eventually it, it didn't work out, you know, and our data told them that brand positioning was good. You know, that it was a compelling, exciting brand, but the product just didn't, didn't deliver at the end of the day. And that was pretty evident through much of the process. So, you know, it was hard watching a client that invested a good amount of research dollars and really had, had their own belief. But, you know, as we're going through the process, like it was never a slam dunk. We were able to give them, okay, like this is where if you're looking at the flavor profiles, this is where we've had some concerns from the brand. Here's what's working. Here's what gets people like, interested and excited. But as with anything, your product still has to follow through, right? So 
it was tough. It was tough watching a client go through that, but we know that we probably saved them a lot of money mm. because they were at least able to get the product to be better. And they knew when the, you know, they knew it was when it was time to pull the plug. So you have to walk the fine line. Basically, the don't kill the messengers, uh, you know, cliche is, is something that you sometimes have to walk. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it's even as simple as this. You know, a client will come to us with three concepts and we'll be like, honestly, these three are almost identical. You are wasting your money testing all three of these because you'll actually say it before you even do the research. Oh yeah, oh yeah, because because we have we have so much experience, right? Like between myself and our leadership team, we have many many decades of experience. So we'll we'll be like, you're likely to get very similar results because consumers just aren't as close to these things as as we as marketers are, right? So we'll like put in something there that is a little bit more controversial that will push the boundaries a little bit more to give you something else. Otherwise. You spent all these uh, this money testing three things that are in the consumer's eyes exactly the same. When's a good time to actually look? I've I've never said to a client, okay, you know, you should maybe I will after this, but like you know, uh, go go spend some time and and do some data research on on X Y Z. Like when is mm-hmm. a good time a marketer should really start thinking in in their career journey? Like I think a lot of us really need to think about using data and research more. Mm-hmm. When's a good time and, and maybe a, a safe-ish time where you know we don't go and you know disrupt everything and tip over yeah. the entire ship? Yeah, it's a great question. I think there there are two key like macro level like places where it is really really valuable. First off is like at the beginning, as early as possible. Like you know nothing about your consumer or your target. You know very little about how they might respond to your products or services. You know very little about your competitors. Most businesses or entrepreneurs have identified something somehow that an opportunity, right? And so at that point, they're probably excited to jump into something. But at that point is also a great place to like double check. Is this is what you think true? How much opportunity? There may be more opportunity than you thought. Or maybe there already is someone else out there doing the same thing, right? So we don't know. So that's a great place because when we do foundational research like that, it tells you about general attitudes, about behaviors. It tells you about segments out there, types of consumers that you want to attract. And it sets a foundation for all the decisions that will happen. So some companies come to us and they do this and they've got the data they need for the next one or two years because it's kind of their like grounding, right? Of how they make decisions. And the second place I would say would be, you've got that foundational stuff. You know your consumer pretty well. You know your business pretty well, but you're looking to make some sort of big, pivot or decision, right? And so new product we want to launch or we want to pivot our positioning to this. Those are great times to be doing that because it's it's a check, right? Often business managers or owners have a lot of invested at that point, have a lot of biases internally about where things are going or should go. And um, it's just a great place to do a check. The worst place is actually at the end when you've already you've made already your decisions. You've done everything, you've made everything. Yeah. It's too expensive by then. So then what about like geniuses like the the Steve Jobs, right? Where, you yeah. know, or or you know, back when when Ford made the car, right? Where yeah. they they have a saying where, you know, if if I asked my consumer back then, they would just tell me to get more horses or, you know, no one would have thought about the iPhone, but yeah. Tell me, do you know if there was a lot of I think you called it foundational research done yeah. to validate this, you know, Steve Jobs was you know, not new. He's not a startup guy at the time. He, he was already yeah. done the Mac and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. 
Is he just like, oh, I'm going to do this? And, or did he have research, do you think? Well, from what I know, visionaries are visionaries. There are people out there that see an opportunity. But if you look at the behaviors of the visionaries, they might not be doing proper research by our, you know, and, then I would, and there's no such thing as proper research. Research is research. Whether you do it yourself or you hire a firm to do it, Steve Jobs and all those visionaries of the past were doing some sort of research on their own. They were looking at competitor products, right? If you think about that very first Steve Jobs introductory iPhone video, mm. what did he talk about? He talked about competitor products, right? He talked to, he did a two by two of like easy to use, intuitive. Like he talked about the three devices. Like even if he didn't do any research, he himself was looking at competitors. He himself was looking at what the friction points. So he talked about how the finger swiped across and styluses don't make sense, right? So where did he get that from? He didn't just invent that on the spot. Him and probably the engineers looked at what was available out there and were doing some form of research. One of the favorite stories I tell students is about <coughs> Howard Schultz, Starbucks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he had this behavior early on in his career. And I think he, he encouraged a lot of his executives to do it. So Howard Schultz is a, a former CEO of Starbucks and he was there for a long, long, long time. He was known for kind of frowning on market research, but he had this behavior. And he started this a long time ago. He would go every single week, coffee shops all around the world, whether they were his stores or competitor stores, and he would just sit there. He would watch people. He'd watch people come in and out. He'd, He'd be the original order. people watcher. Is that what he was? You know, those yeah, people he would, that just... Yeah, yeah. He would sit there and have a coffee or whatever he was doing and he would watch people come in and out. He would watch people order. He would watch whether they went to the bathroom or not. He would watch whether they sat down and worked. He would watch how they interacted with the shelves. That itself is research. So that's what we call observational research. And we can we can do this in a more scientific way. But he he had this habit of like watching, you know, as a visionary, as a, as a, as a CEO of a huge company, he kept himself in this habit of being amongst his business, amongst his consumers, amongst his competitors, even all around the world. And he would bring these ideas, right? He would gather these ideas and bring it back. And he would encourage, you know, I believe Starbucks still has this, but they ask every single one of their managers and executives, they have to work in a retail store every year. There's a certain amount of time they have to do it every single year because there's value any position. So even executives have to go and like do barista work or like teller work, you know, like, like mm-hmm. interacting work. I, I believe that's still a habit. I don't know if it still is for sure, but that was a thing because there's value in being mm-hmm. and seeing the operations and seeing what's happening with consumers out there. So back to your original question, absolutely. These visionaries have ideas that consumers can't tell you about, but I think all those ideas are founded in something where they use their own research at a minimum. And we also know that Apple, as an example, is incredibly secretive. They do do research. I've seen, I know people who are in research roles, market research roles at Apple. They're just very, very secretive about it. And they hide it very well. A lot of the work we do, for example, is blinded. So you have no idea which company is sponsoring the research. And they combine that with kind of their savvy and their design intuition, right? Based on lots of experience to build great products. I want to pivot now to leadership. You know, so... You're a business leader, you know, locally here in the state of Washington as well, you know, but as leaders, you know, we, we have our own profile and, and someone who is raised here, Chinese ethnicity, I think you said from Shanghai mm-hmm. and, and Hong Kong, my parents are from Hong Kong. You know, I was interviewing um, a couple of other leaders in Toronto, you know, black leaders, uh, Mark Harrison, most recently from Black Talent Initiative. He talks about 
systemic racism and, and how it exists. And even though that didn't really, you know, really affect his career, he's done very well. And he, he talks about that. Yeah. He, he does note that as leaders, you know, we do have to, you know, set an example for those who might be struggling with that kind of stuff. So yeah, wanted to see, you know, if, if you've experienced it, if there's anything that you wanted to share on it. I know in our pre-call, we did talk about a little bit about this, but I wanted to see, you know, yeah. for audiences, audience members listening to this, yeah. you know, what your insights are on that. You know, it's a, uh, it's a topic that's near and dear to my heart just because like I, I grew up, you know, in the eighties and nineties here. And I think Canada is an amazing place, but a lot of our racism is hidden and it's not as overt as, you know, as in other places. So growing up as a kid, I absolutely experienced, it. I experienced it in elementary school and being called names. I experienced it in being bullied. I'm really thankful for the friends I had, the teachers I had, the business, my business part, all the people that have ever mentored me that looked past that. Because as far as I would say the people who are really horrible about racism is in the minority here. My friends growing up in elementary school were all Italian. I grew up in North Burnaby, a bunch of Italians, mm-hmm. and I was always welcomed into their homes. You know, I loved pasta. I loved Italian. I still do because I grew up with a bunch of Italian friends early on in my, my life. And I have such an enjoyment and respect for like the multicultural foundation of our country because I lived that growing up and it was so amazing. And it was those small blips where that was challenged, where I'm like, I really developed a sense of like, you know, fair, like, like a strong sense of like wanting fairness. And I, you know, I definitely experienced that like growing up as a kid through school and, or, you know, early in my career, like, you know, it, it was once again, it wasn't so overt, but you could notice that like all the leaders tended to be white, tended to be male even, you know? And so like, it wasn't just racism, it's sexism, and you could see it in the world around us. And over the past decade, you know, that has improved. We have a long way to go still. But, um, you know, I'm really encouraged by the progress. And, and for me, you know, last year, I really learned about truth and reconciliation for the first time. And so that's another whole other, you know, thing for as a Canadian that was new. I never learned about that in school. And so I actually wrote a LinkedIn post. I wrote wrote a a long LinkedIn post because we had a great guest speaker. His name is Kevin Lamoureux. And he speaks about truth and reconciliation. He's a prof in Manitoba who speaks about this. But it was such a revelation to me that like my experience growing up a kid wasn't perfect, but I was still, you know, considered to be part of a minority that, you know, was invited to this country compared to someone who, you know, was part of our First Nations and had a very different experience. So like as a business leader, I would say it's incredibly important to me to not ever hide my heritage. I share very, you know, a lot about my past and my history and my heritage. You know, we gave our staff the day off for Truth and Reconciliation Day, and we had our guest speaker last year to teach us about that, because I think that is one of the 94 calls to action is for businesses to help tell the story. And so for me as a leader, it's just important to not dodge these questions, to not dodge these topics, to make sure it's at the forefront and that we're having discourse about it. And as a father and as a parent, you know, it's a similar thing. Like I don't want to, like from coming from Chinese culture, like you, you might appreciate the fact that, you know, part of that culture is to like, keep on keeping on, right? Just keep your head mm-hmm. down. It doesn't matter. Like I saw my parents get, you know, discriminated against from other ethnicities, as well as the majority ethnicities here growing up. They just kept their head down, worked their way through it, encouraged us to do the same. But that's not, that's not good enough. 
It really isn't. So as a leader, I think it's important to talk about that. As a parent, I think it's important to talk about that and call people, call my kids out when they're, you know, not doing what they should be doing. Yeah, I think that's the hidden conversation or comment that you had earlier. It actually resonated with me in my experience, you know, in, in terms of the truth and reconciliation. Like we we didn't, we never learned that in school. And in mm-hmm. fact, the only reason I heard about it was one of our clients, Van City Credit Union. You know, they started doing the truth and reconciliation conversations back in like, I want to say 14 or 15. Mm. And, you know, when we were growing up, we didn't talk about residential schools. We didn't talk about the internment camps for, you know, the Japanese, the Germans, Ukrainians. Mm. They didn't talk about the railroads. I had to learn about that much later um, mm. growing up. And and my my wife actually, you know, being Chinese, her family actually comes from like the head tax times. So her great grandfather um, has; they still have it in the family of the head tax certificate. So granddad comes wow. one Easter dinner and plops down this piece of paper, mm-hmm. you know, of, of oppression basically back then. And uh, that piece of paper was older than everybody in the house and and the house itself, right? And and being able to learn that and have that those conversations, I think, are important. Yeah, and yeah, we we ourselves had invited a, a high level le- uh, leader to come and speak to our our group because I read the ninety four calls of action as well, and yeah. that was one of the things that, as a business leader, it was is something that that we can do. Yeah, um, and one more thing to add to that, just to be yeah. very open, like I had some really really strong and incorrect perceptions and attitudes myself, and like, I'll be very open about that. Like you know, growing up, I was like how come these people like get their own roads? And like, how mm. come like there's these signs is telling us to keep out? Like, I'm so annoyed with this. Like I'm an immigrant. Like I had some really horrible attitudes about it, but you know, having gone through the process of learning the history, and I think it's so important, the history of how we got to where we are and like the, the real truth behind that. Like you understand why there are problems mm-hmm within the fabric for our society and with this, with, with first nations and how we do have to like heal through that. Right. And so I spent so many years because I wasn't educated about it, not because I had any malicious intent, but I just was never taught the truth about it. I was taught more about recycling as a kid. Yeah, we right? were. The like ozone, we were don't use hairspray. Remember like, don't use hairspray. Yeah. yeah. We were hammered with recycling, but nothing about first nations. Right. And so, of course, we had all these wrong perceptions and of all these wrong things. And so I'm glad that's not the case. Like, I know my kids are learning all about that right now. And so I'm very thankful for that. Yeah, as well. And, and I think also when it comes to inclusion, you know, the, the transgender conversation too. Mm-hmm. You know, in my daughter's school, they're starting to talk about that, mm-hmm. you know, and getting them aware uh, about, you know, all sorts of genders. And, uh, I, you know... I'm not perfect. I don't know much. And I kind of, I think for myself, you know, being someone who consumes a lot of mainstream media and, and conversation, um, to know that, you know, it, things are changing um, mm-hmm. is a good thing. I think there is definitely a lot more to do. And as leaders, it, it's definitely something that that we can play a part of. Have you, on the research side, done any kind of research pertaining to diversity, inequality, and inclusion? Yeah, I mean, we've done quite a lot of multicultural research where, you know, a certain client will will recognize that one audience is is quite important to them. And so, you know, there's a lot of intricacies, right? That the challenge I think is doing research with minorities, especially in language, you know, the diasporas and the very like focused audiences is expensive, 
it takes more time. You spend more time translating. And so like we have to get over that hurdle of saying it's good enough just to do it in English, right? Even in Canada, a lot of times clients are like, oh, we don't have to do French for Quebec. We just survey Montreal in English, good enough, right? And it's not really, it's not, right? But that that is often that is often the decision that is made because of budget and because of time. And so it is a real challenge of saying, like, no, for your particular objective, that's not going to be good enough. At the end of the day, the client makes a decision on where to spend the money. But for us, we have to at least put the options out there and say, look, like consider like speaking with a Chinese audience and Toronto and Vancouver. If you can't do it in language, then at least find some individuals who were, were not born here that are, haven't been tenured as long, but is comfortable doing it in English. At least get some representation. Because mm-hmm. I mean, I think it was a StatsCan data point, you know, by 2030, the minorities will be the majority. So how do you not speak to the South Asian community? How do you not speak to the Chinese community or the, you know, Southeast Asian, like, like all of those mixed in together, like that has, they, they have to be included in the research. And in the US, it would be the Hispanic community, the black community, especially, you know, like you have to get that kind of representation. So we do things like census balancing on ethnicity and income and gender, all of that to try to get as representative as possible. But, you know, it's, it is a challenge to get it perfect. And we still have a lot of work to do there. Okay, well, you know, we're running a little bit short on time. So I'm going to pivot to our little fun rapid fire round and just ask <laughs> a few things about, about Hanson. So it's just, you know, really quick top of the mind kind of questions and, and top of the mind answers. You ready? Yeah, let's go. So in our pre-call, we talked about you being a Star Trek fan. So which series this is a big one? Which series is your favorite? Next Generation, hands down. It was the one that I like got hooked on as a kid. I had VHS tapes recorded, like <laughs> number coded. Like I recorded every single episode. If I missed one because a tape failed or whatever, I would freak out about it and have to wait weeks to like find it. But like I can, I can, I can spout off lines from episodes from Next Generation. The first three episodes, first first two seasons were horribly misogynistic uh-huh, uh-huh. and racist. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. When Riker would realize. say stuff, you're like, wow. Like now that I watch them, like, yeah. Oh, you like and, and the thing is they were like, you know, <laughs> pretending to be all like, oh, we're so progressive. And now you're like, oh, you you can't say that at all. Like they're a hard like nowadays, like if you try to watch it again, like the first two seasons are a difficult watch. Season three onwards, like it just really it was amazing. So um yep, still I would say do you have a favorite episode? I mean the easiest answer would be best of both worlds. Um, like the the cliffhanger where Picard gets turned into a Borg. Like Is that for you? That's an easy answer? I, I, easy. I wouldn't that was that wasn't like that may be like a top five for me, but it wouldn't be yeah. the top one. Inner light from like uh like a personal like story standpoint. And then like as a dork who likes like gear, like there's an episode called Pegasus where like the oh, Federation yeah, yeah, where, like where, where Riker goes into the rock or whatever. Yeah, because they, the yeah, they yeah. behind yeah, because under the table basically developed an illegal cloak. <laughs> for Starfleet chips. Sorry, I'm like super nerding out right now. You're totally nerding out here. Sorry, yeah. audience. We should probably... Move on. Okay, so favorite type of cuisine that's not uh, Chinese? Italian. Right. Italian, yeah. Any particular pasta that's your favorite? You know, like I love fresh pasta. Fresh pasta? like Italian, Italian like thick like noodles. I'll, I actually make my own pasta noodles when I have time. Um, like nice and chewy. But one of my favorite experiences at the same time was uh, my wife and I were in Rome, like before we had kids, 
those were the days. Uh, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I had a pizza and a Coke and it was like the greatest experience of my life. I'm not a big drinker, but pizza and a Coke is like heaven to me. So today, nowadays, pizza and a Coke and a hockey game, like don't, don't bother me. hockey. All right, cool. So uh, <laughs> who are going to make the playoffs this year? The Canucks or the Kraken? Canucks. I, I, I have to say that, right? You have to say that? Okay. To Who's going to win the Stanley Cup this year? Colorado. Going to go out there and put Colorado. If you didn't live in Vancouver, which NHL city would you live in? Oh, Seattle. Seattle. Well, now you can say that. Now you can say yeah, that. Yeah, because I, I live there and I love Seattle. I love Seattle. I love like how similar but different it is from Vancouver. What's your favorite part of Seattle? There's there's probably two. Uh, there's an area called like this north of Seattle called like Green Lake and Ballard, which is like just outside the city. But it's, it's kind of like, I mean, the closest approximation would be like the North Shore where I live in Vancouver. That would be kind of like the North Shore of Seattle. Like just like nice, like super close to the city, great restaurants, like very walkable. Um, love it. But I also lived in the east side. So like Bellevue, uh, also like that a lot too. Favorite non-Starbucks coffee place in Seattle? Ooh, crap. What's the name of that place? You know what? There's a place at the airport called Dilettante. And they do like, they have like, so I like chocolate. <laughs> and they do like mocha, but they have like four or five different like types of chocolate that they mix in based on like cocoa percentage. So it's kind of like my like treat when I like fly through SeaTac. And like, I always go and get a mocha at this place. So that would be like my fave spot. You a dark chocolate or milk chocolate guy? Milk chocolate. Sugar, sweet tooth. Favorite holiday? Halloween, Valentine's, New Year's, Christmas? I love Christmas. It always reminds me of like my childhood and being around lots of family. And like, I see how happy my kids are. Like it's, 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 it is a magical time. Super cliche, I know, but. How old were you? You're wearing AirPods right now, and I know you have kids at home, so I'm like, I can ask this question because you have kids. How old were you when you found out that Santa did not exist? Oh, so we have this tradition in my house where my dad always dressed up as Santa, and like all our cousins would be over, and Santa would come bearing gifts, and it was this huge thing. And we were still doing it until COVID, and my brother is now taking over the mantle. Um, so it was early on, like like probably like five or six. Because it was like, it's dad, right? Like dad is showing up, <laughs> you know, <laughs> in like the fake Santa, in the, in the Santa suit. Hey man, your story is better than mine. I'm going to out my mom here. So when I was growing up, you know, Chinese kid, I lived in Coquitlam, right? Like you had a bunch of Italians. I had one Italian, a yeah. Filipino kid and me, and the rest were, were, you know, very, very white. Nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, every, all the kids are talking about Santa this and Santa that. And I... And this is like before kindergarten. This is like preschool. And so I'm asking my mom, I think it was like three or four. And I asked my mom, like, hey, um, who's Santa? And like, you know, where does he come from? And my mom, so my mom being, you know, she's trying to speak English because, you know, trying to teach her kid English ain't very good. Um, she proceeds to tell me that Santa's dead. Right? Like, oh my like, gosh. like, yeah, like, <laughs> well, but she's, she's saying it like, you know, like she meant he doesn't exist, but the word, and you know, he was a real person and blah, blah, blah. And he doesn't exist. He's gone. He's dead. And so, you know, you know, life happens. Even as a three-year-old, you knew that people passed. So I lived this for a long, for a couple of years and then kindergarten comes around 
And all these kids are like, oh, hey, what's Santa going to get you? What's Santa going to get you? And I am trying to be informative, you know, like a helpful friend and be like, oh, hey, guys, you know, um, Santa died, right? Oh, God. Like, and I said it loud enough that most of the class heard and turned their head to me. That was, uh, that was not a good start to kindergarten, I'll tell you that. So, wow. <laughs> That's borderline traumatic. Well, yeah, you should do some research on you know how many kids I affected for that. Um, we should probably wrap up the call. Do you have any um, thoughts on the future of research, where that's going? Yeah, I mean, what's exciting for us is that you know technology has is continuously changing, like what we do. So you know, like one of the reasons, the one of the ways our company is set up is that we don't have like any kind of fixed technologies, we're always curating what we think are the latest and greatest tools. So I'm super excited about all the tools that are coming in the future. I'm excited about what's going to happen with like biometrics and how much we're going to be able to do without actually asking questions. I think there's always going to be a place for, you know, good researchers and good interviewers, but there's a lot of like cool stuff coming and going to continue coming technology wise. So combining that with like the higher emphasis on strategy and and using research for strategy, I think there's a, a lot of a lot to be excited about. Awesome. Well, Hanson, it was a pleasure and an honor to speak with you, my fellow Star Trek nerd friend. And uh, I wish you all the best. And thanks everybody for another great episode of Marketing News Canada. Thanks, Hanson. Bye, guys. Thanks for having me, Ted. Thanks for listening to Marketing News Canada. For more episodes and other great stories from Canadian marketers, visit marketingnewscanada.com. All episodes are recorded in the Jelly Marketing Studio thanks to our producer, Chris Penner, and editors Travis Jeffers and The Podfather. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.